This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear In the Middle of the Fields by Mary Lavin, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1961. She had seen something to put on her feet. Under the table in the hall was a pair of Robert's old shoes with the fleece lining in them. She hadn't been able to make up her mind to give them away with the rest of his clothes. And although they were big and clumsy on her, she often stuck her feet into them when she came in from the fields with mud on her shoes. The story was chosen by Colm Toivin, who has published 11 books of fiction, including most recently the novels The Testament of Mary, Nora Webster, and this year's House of Names. Hi, Colm. Hi, Derry. So you mentioned that you met Mary Lavin in the 70s, maybe, when you were a student? Yeah, when I came to University College Dublin in 1972, her daughter, Caroline Walsh, was two years ahead of me, and I knew her. But you would see Mary Lavin in the city. In fact, I was sure that we, we perhaps even on a visit to Dublin would, one day would have seen her. Um, and she was a stately figure dressed in black with her hair tied behind her head. And she walked in a certain way, always alone, moving between certain cafes in the city. People noticed her, people saw her. And when I was a student then, she certainly came to the university. She made herself absolutely free to come. I mean, she was great at coming for any student society to read one of her stories or to talk about um, writing. Um, she'd been friends with Eudora Weldy. She's been, she'd known Elizabeth Bowen. You know, she'd been part of that milieu with Sean of Whelan, Frank O'Connor. So she had many things to discuss, but the thing she most wanted to talk about was the short story. And that was meaningful to you then already? I was partly fascinated by her because my father had died when I was 12, and the word widow became a big word in my lexicon from that age. And she wrote a lot about being a widow. And while she married again, she was certainly on my radar for that reason as well. And in Dublin, if you were a a writer of that calibre, you had some status? You see, there was no Wall Street, no Hollywood, (laughs) and nobody was especially rich. So, and there was no Rembrandt, you know, and there was no uh, de Kooning. I mean, there was no Cedar (laughs) Tavern. And also there was no great, um, I mean, there was a musical culture, but not a great composer. So that those figures, the figures, say, of John McGahern, who would have been a friend of Mary Lavin's, they would have been significant figures in the sort of public life of the city. And they would have been photographed a lot. And uh, indeed, these were the years the poets were emerging, poets such as Seamus Heaney or Thomas Kinsler or Ivan Boland. What what did people think of Mary Lavin then? I mean, what was the sort of figure that she cut? She had written these stories about being a widow. She had written quite a lot by that point. Was she thought of as a groundbreaker or...? You know, I think that um, that there there sort of had been figures like Flann O'Brien, who came after Joyce, and indeed Beckett, who were the groundbreakers. This was another tradition of the Irish short story, which made its way perhaps back into Joyce's Dubliners rather than Joyce's Ulysses. But she was certainly considered to be a great inheritor of that tradition and belonging in, in indeed in a line which I think she would have drawn between Ireland and Russia, um, coming from Chekhov and Turgenev, that she would certainly have seen that as very important, as indeed she would have seen a figure like Eudora Weldy as being a sort of crucial, I think she made those crucial connections. Yeah. Um, incidentally, on the um, 
Um, Elizabeth Bishop died and the following night sh- she was to read um, in Harvard with Mary Lavin. In other words, in those years she, was, she, she had that sort of stature yeah. that she would read with a figure like Elizabeth Bishop. Yeah. I looked at the um, Irish Times obituary from when she died in 1996 and it called her one of modern Irish fiction's most subversive voices, which was interesting to me. You know, I think the idea of writing about submerged lives of women living in isolation and, for example, in this story, The Middle of the Fields, which we're going to hear, there's an idea that, oh, she should be shocked by what occurs. It should be very easy to work the story out. Mm -hmm. But actually she turns the story. And very often she would do that where, say, an older woman could fall for a younger man in a story. Mm-hmm. And, and do so in a, in a very careful, slow way with quite a lot of disappointments, but also quite a lot of sudden flashes that would come. In a very quiet way, she managed to register quite a great sort of levels of feeling. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Colm Toybin reading In the Middle of the Fields by Mary Lavin. In the Middle of the Fields... Like a rock in the sea, she was islanded by fields, the heavy grass washing about the house and the cattle wading in it as in water. Even their gentle stirrings were a loss when they moved away at evening to the shelter of the woods. A rainy day might strike a wet flash from a hay barn on the far side of the river, not even a habitation. And yet she was less lonely for him here in me than elsewhere. Anxieties by day and cares, and at night vague, nameless fears. These were the stones across the mouth of the tomb. But who understood that? They thought she hugged tight every memory she had of him. What did they know about memory? What was it but another name for dry love and barren longing? They even tried to unload upon her their own small purposeless memories. I imagine I see him every time I look out there, they would say, as they glanced nervously over the darkening fields when they were leaving. I think I ought to see him coming through the trees. Oh, for God's sake, she'd think. I'd forgotten him for a minute. It wasn't him she saw when she looked out at the fields this spring morning. It was the ugly tufts of tow and scotch that whitened the tops of the grass and gave it the look of a sea in storm spattered with broken foam. That grass would have to be topped. And how much would that cost? At least Ned, the old herd, knew the man to do it for her. Bartley Crossan is your man, ma'am. Your husband knew him well. She couldn't place him at first. Then she remembered, oh yes, that's his hay barn we see, isn't it? Why, of course. I know him well by sight, I mean. And so she did splashing past on the road in a big muddy car, the wheels always caked with clay, and the wife in the front seat beside him. I'll get him to call around and have a word with you, ma'am, said a herd. Before dark, she cautioned. But there was no need to tell him. The old man knew how she always tried to be upstairs before it got dark, locking herself into her room, which opened off the room where the children slept praying devotedly that she wouldn't have to come down again for anything, above all, not to answer the door. 
That was what in particular she dreaded, a knock at the door after dark. Asher, who'd come near you, ma'am, knowing you're a woman alone with small children that might be wakened and set crying? And for that matter, where could you be safer than in the middle of the fields with the innocent beasts asleep around you? If he himself had come to the house late at night for any reason, to get hot water, to stoop at the foot of a beast, or to call the vet, he took care to shout out long before he got to the gable, It's me, ma'am, he'd shout, Coming, coming, she'd cry gratefully, as quick on his words as their echo. Unlocking her door, she'd run down and throw open the whole door, no matter what the hour, no matter how black the night. Go back to your bed now, ma'am, he'd say from the darkness, where she could see the swinging yard lamp coming nearer and nearer, like the light of a little boat drawing near to a jetty. I'll put out the lights and let myself out. Relaxed by the thought that there was someone in the house, she would indeed scuttle back into bed, and what was more, she'd be nearly asleep before she'd hear the door slam. Just a sound like the slam of a door a million miles away. There was no need to worry. He'd see that Crossan came early. It was well before dark when Crossan did drive up to the door. The wife was with him as usual, sitting up in the front seat the way people sat up in the well of little tub traps long ago, their knees pressed together, allowing no slump. The herd had come with them, but only he and Crossan got out. Won't your wife come inside and wait, Mr. Crossan, she asked. Oh, not at all, ma'am. She likes sitting in the car. Now, where is this grass that's to be cut? Are there any stones lying about that would blunt the blade? Going around the gable of the house, he looked out over the land. There's not a stone or a stump in it, Ned said. You'd run your blade over the whole of it while you'd be wetting it twenty times in another place. I can see that, said Bartley Crossan, but absently, she thought. He had walked across the lawn to the rickety wooden gate that led into the pasture and leaned on it. He didn't seem to be looking at the fields at all, though, but at the small string of stunted thorns that grew along the river bank, their branches leaning so heavily out over the water that their roots were almost dragged clear of the clay. Suddenly, he turned around and gave a sigh. Asher didn't need to look. I know it well. Asher showed surprise. He gave a little laugh like a young man. I courted a girl down there when I was a lad, he said. That's a queer length of time ago now, I can tell you. He turned to the old man. You might remember it. Then he looked back at her. I don't suppose you were thought of at all in those days, ma'am, he said. There was something kindly in his look and in his words. You'd like the mowing done soon, I suppose. How about first thing in the morning? Her face lit up. But there was the price to settle. It won't be as dear as cutting meadow, will it? Ah, I won't be too hard on you, ma'am, he said. I can promise you that. That's very kind of you, she said, but a little doubtfully. Behind Crossan's back, Ned nodded his head in approval. Let it go at that, ma'am, he whispered as they walked back towards the car. He's a man you can trust. And when Crossan and the wife had driven away, he reassured her again. A decent man, he said. Then he gave a laugh. 
too, was a young kind of laugh for a man of his age. It was like a nudge. Did you hear what he said, though, about the girl he courted down there? Do you know who that was? It was his first wife. You know, he was twice married. I oh, well, it's so long ago, I wouldn't wonder if you never heard it. Look at the way he spoke about her himself, as if she was some girl he'd all but forgotten. The thorn trees brought her to his mind. That's where they used to meet, being only youngsters, when they first took up with each other. Poor Bridie Logan. She was as wild as a hare. And she was mad with love, young as she was. They were company-keeping while they were still going to school. Only nobody took it seriously, him least of all, maybe, till the winter he went away to the agricultural college in Clonakilty. She started writing to him then. I used to see her running up to the postbox at the crossroads every other evening. And sure, the whole village knew where the letter was going. His people were fit to be tied when he came home in the summer and said he wasn't going back, but he was going to marry Bridie. All the same, his father set them up in a cottage on his own land. It's the cottage that's used now for stall feds. It's back of the new house. Oh, but you can't judge it now for what it was then. Giddy and all as she was, as light-headed as a thistle. You should have seen the way she kept that cottage. She'd have it scrubbed away if she didn't start having a baby. He wouldn't let her take the scrubbing brush into her hands after that. But she wasn't delicate, was she? Bridie, she was as strong as a kid goat, that one. But I told you she was mad about him, didn't I? Well, after she was married to him, she was no better, or worse, you'd say. She couldn't do enough for him. It was like as if she was driven on by some kind of fever. You'd only look in her eyes to see it. Do you know what? From that day to this, I don't believe I ever saw a woman so full of going as that one. Did you ever happen to see little birds flying about in the air like they were flying for the divilment of it and nothing else? And did you ever see the way they give a sort of little lep in the air, like they were forcing themselves to go a bit higher still, higher than they ought? Well, it struck me that was the way Bridie was acting, as she rushed about that cottage, doing this and doing that to make him prouder and prouder of her, as if he couldn't be any prouder than he was already and the child getting noticeable. She didn't die in childbed. No, not in a manner of speaking anyway. She had the child nice and easy, and in their own cottage too, only costing him a few shillings for one of those women that went in for that kind of job long ago. And all went well. It was no time till she was let up on her feet again. I was there the first morning. She had the place to herself. She was up and dressed when I got there, just as he was going out to milk. Oh, it's great to be able to go out again, she said, taking a great breath of the morning air, as she stood at the door looking after him. Wait, why don't I come with you to milk, she called out suddenly after him. Then she threw a glance back at the baby asleep in its crib by the window. Oh, it's too far for you, Bridie, he cried, the cows where down the little field by the river, you know the field alongside the road at the foot of the hill, this side of the village. And knowing she'd start coaxing him, he made out of the gate with the cans. Good man, I said to myself, 
but the next thing I knew, she darted across the yard. I can go on the bike if it's too far to walk, she said. And up she got on her old bike, and out she pedalled through the gate. Bridey, are you out of your mind, he shouted as she whizzed past him. Her, what harm can it do me, she shouted back. I went stiff with fright looking after her, and I thought it was the same with him when he threw down the cans and started down the hill after her. But looking back on it, I think it was the same fever as always was raging in her that started raging in him too, mad with love. That's what they were, both of them. She only wanting to draw him on, and the only too willing. Wait for me, he shouted. But before she'd even got to the bottom, she started to break the bike, putting down her foot like you'd see a youngster do, and raising up such a cloud of dust you could hardly see her. She braked too hard. Not her. In the twinkle of an eye, she'd stopped the bike, jumped off, turned it round and was pedalling madly up the hill again, her head down on the handlebars like a racing cyclist. But that was the finish of her. Oh no, what happened? She stopped pedalling all of a sudden and the bike half stopped and then it started to go back down the hill a bit as if it skidded on the loose gravel at the side of the road. That's what I thought happened. And him too, I suppose, because we both began to run down the hill. She didn't get time to fall before we got to her. But what use was that? It was some kind of internal bleeding that took her. We got her into the bed, and the neighbours came running. But she was gone before the night. Oh, such a thing to happen, and the baby... Well, it was a strong child, and it grew into a fine lump of a lad. That's the fellow that drives the tractor for him now, the oldest son, Bartley. (laughs) Well, I hope his second marriage had more to it when all was said and done. That's it. And she's a good woman, the second one, the way she brought up that child of Bridie's and filled the cradle year after year with sons of her own. Ah, sure... Things always work out for the best in the end, no matter what, he said. And he started to walk away. Wait a minute, Ned, she said urgently. Do you really think he forgot about her? For years, I mean. I'd swear it, said the old man. And then he looked hard at her. It will be the same with you too, he added kindly. Take my word for it. Everything passes in time and is forgotten. As she shook her head doubtfully, he shook his emphatically. When the tree falls, how can the shadow stand, he said, and he walked away. I wonder, she thought as she walked back to the house, and she envied the practical country way that made good the defaults of nature as readily as the broken sod in its back into the sward. Again that night, when she went up to her room, she looked down towards the river, and she thought of Crossan. Had he really forgotten? It was hard for her to believe, and with a sigh she picked up her hairbrush and pulled it through her hair. Like everything else about her lately, her hair was sluggish and hung heavily down. But after a few minutes, under the quickening strokes of the brush, it lightened and lifted, and soon it flew about her face, 
like the spray above a weir. It had always been the same, even when she was a child. She had only to suffer the first painful drag of the bristles when her mother would cry out, Look, look, that's electricity! And a blue spark would shine for an instant, like a star in the great depths of the mirror. That was all they knew of electricity in those dim-lit days when valleys of shadow lay deep between one piece of furniture and another. Was it because rooms were so badly lit that they saw it so often, that little blue star? Suddenly, she was overcome by longing to see it again. Standing up impetuously, she switched off the light. It was just then that down below, the iron fist of the knocker was lifted, and with a loud, confident hand brought down on the door. It wasn't a furtive knock. She admitted that even as she sat stark with fright in the darkness. And then a voice that was vaguely familiar called out, and confidently from below, It's me, ma'am. I hope I'm not disturbing you. Oh, Mr. Crossan, she cried out with relief, and unlocking her door, she ran across the landing and threw up the window on that side of the house. I'll be right down, she called. Oh, don't come down, ma'am, he shouted. I only want one word with you. But of course I'll come down. She went back to get out of her dressing gown, but on her slippers and pin up her hair. But as she did, she heard him stomping his feet on the gravel. It had been a mild day, but with night a chill had come in the air, and for all that it was late spring, there was a cutting east wind coming across the river. I'll run down and let you in from the cold, she called, and twisting up her hair, she held it against her head with her hand, without waiting to pin it, and she ran down the stairs to unbolt the door. You are going to bed, ma'am, he said accusingly, the minute she opened the door, and where he had been so impatient a minute beforehand, he stood stock still in the open doorway. I saw the lights were out downstairs when I was coming up the drive, he said contritely, but I didn't think you'd gone up for the night. Neither had I, she said lyingly, to put him at his ease. I was just upstairs brushing my hair. You must excuse me, she added, because a breeze from the door was blowing her dressing gown from her knees, and to pull it across she had to take her hand from her hair so that the hair fell down about her shoulders. Would you mind closing the door for me, she said, with some embarrassment, and she began to back up the stairs. Please go inside to the sitting room, won't you, she said, nodding towards the door of the small room off the hall. Put on the light. I'll be down in a minute. But although he had obediently stepped inside the door and closed it, he stood stoutly in the middle of the hall, I shouldn't have come in at all, he said. I know you were going to bed. Look at you, he cried again in the same accusing voice, as if he dared her this time to deny it. He was looking at her hair. Excuse my saying so, ma'am, but I never saw such a fine head of hair. God bless it, he said quickly, as if afraid he had been rude. Doesn't a small thing make a big differ, he said impulsively. He looked like a young girl. In spite of herself, she smiled with pleasure. She wanted no more of it all the same. Well, I don't feel like one, she said sharply. What was meant for a quite opposite effect, however, seemed to delight him and put him wonderfully at ease. 
Asher, you're a sensible woman. I can see that, he said. And coming to the foot of the stairs, he leaned comfortably across the newel post. Let you stay the way you are, ma'am, he said. I've only a word to say to you. It's not worth your while going up them stairs. Let me have my say here and now, and I'll be off about my business. The wife will be waiting for me, and I don't want that. She hesitated. Was the reference to his wife meant to put her at her ease? I think I ought to get my slippers, she said cautiously. Her feet were cold. Oh, put something on your feet, he cried, only then seeing that she was in her bare feet. But as to the rest, I'm long gone beyond taking any account of what a woman has on her. I'm gone beyond taking notice of women at all. She had seen something to put on her feet. Under the table in the hall was a pair of Robert's old shoes with fleece lining in them. She hadn't been able to make up her mind to give them away with the rest of his clothes. And although they were big and clumsy on her, she often stuck her feet into them when she came in from the fields with mud on her shoes. Well, come in where it's warm, so, she said. She came back down the few steps and stuck her feet into the boots and then opened the door of the sitting room. She was glad she'd come down. He'd never have been able to put on the light. There's something wrong with the centre light, she said, as she groped along the wainscot to find the plug of the reading lamp. It was in an awkward place behind the desk. She had to go down on her knees. What's wrong with it, he asked, as, with a countryman's interest in practicalities, he clicked the switch up and down to no effect. Oh, it's nothing much, I'm sure, she said, absently there. She'd found the plug, and the room was lit up with a bright white glow. Why don't you leave the plug in the socket anyway, he asked critically. I don't know, she said. I think someone told me it's safer with reading lamps to pull them out at night. There might be a short circuit or mice might nibble at the cord or something. I forget what I was told. I got into the habit of doing it and now I keep on. She felt a bit silly. But he was concerned about it. I don't think any harm could be done, he said gravely. Then he turned away from the problem. About tomorrow, ma'am, he said, somewhat offhandedly, she thought. I was determined I'd see you tonight because I'm not a man to break my word, above all to a woman. What was he getting at? Let me put it this way, he said quickly. You understand, ma'am, that as far as I'm concerned, topping land is the same as cutting hay, the same time, the same labour cost, and the same wear and tear on the blade. You understand that? On her guard, she nodded. Well, now, ma'am, I'd be the first to admit that it's not quite the same for you. For you, topping doesn't give the immediate return you'd get from hay. Oh, there's no return from it, she exclaimed crossly. Oh, come now, ma'am, come. Good grassland pays as well as anything. You know you won't get nice sweet pickings for your beasts from neglected land, but only dirty old tow grass knotting under their feet. It's just that it's not a quick return. And so, as you know, I made a special price for you. I do know, she said impatiently, but I thought that part of it was settled and done. Oh, I'm not going to go back on it if that's what you think, he said affably. I'm glad to do what I can for you, ma'am, the more so seeing you have no man to attend to these things for you. 
with only yourself along. Oh, I'm well able to look after myself, she said, raising her voice. Once again, her words had an opposite effect to what she intended. He laughed good-humouredly. That's what all women like to think, he said. Well, now, he said in a different tone of voice, and it annoyed her to see he seemed to think something had been settled between them. It would suit me, and I'm sure it's all the same with you, if we could leave your little job till later in the week. Say till nearer to the time of the haymaking generally. Because by then, I'll have the cutting bar in good order, sharpened and ready for use. Whereas now, while there's still a bit of ploughing to be done here and there, I'll have to be chopping and changing between the plough and the moor putting one on one minute and the other the next. As if anyone is still ploughing this time of the year. Her eyes hardened. Who were you putting before me, she demanded. Now take it easy, ma'am, no one, leastways not without getting leave first from you. Without telling me you're not coming, you mean. Oh, now, ma'am, don't get cross. I'm only trying to make matters easy for everyone. But she was very angry now. It's always the same story. I thought you'd treat me differently. I'm to wait till after this one and after that one. And in the end, my fields will go wild. He looked a bit shamefaced. Anna, ma'am, that's not going to be the case at all. Although, mind you, some people don't hold with topping, you know. I hold with it. Oh, I suppose there's something in it, she said reluctantly. But the way I look at it, cutting the weeds in July is a kind of a topping. Grass cut before it goats to seed gets so thick at the roots no weeds can come up, she cried, so angry she didn't realise how authoritative she sounded. Faith, I never knew you were so well up, ma'am, he said, looking at her admiringly. But she saw he wasn't going to be put down by her. All the same now, ma'am, you can't say a few days here or there could make any difference. A few days could make all the difference. This farm has a gravelly bottom to it, for all it's so lush. A few days of drought could burn it to the butt. And how could I mow it then? What cover would there be for the nice sweet pickings you were talking about a minute ago? Angrily, she mimicked his own accent without thinking. He threw up his hands. Ah, well, I suppose a man may as well admit when he's bested, he said, even by a woman. And you can't say I broke my promise. I can't say what you tried hard enough, she said grudgingly, although she was mollified that she was getting her way. Can I offer you anything, she said then, anxious to convey an air of finality to their discussion. Oh, not at all, ma'am, nothing, thank you. I'll have to be getting home, he stood up. She stood up too. I hope you won't think I was trying to take advantage of you, he said, as he went towards the door. It's just that we must all make out as best we can for ourselves, isn't that so? No, but you're well able to look after yourself, I must say. No one ever thought you'd stay on here after your husband died. I suppose it's for the children you did it. He looked up the well of the stairs. Are they asleep? Oh, long ago, she said indifferently. She opened the hall door. The night air swept in immediately, as it had earlier, but this time from far away it bore along on it the faint scent of new-mown hay. There's hay cut somewhere already, she exclaimed in surprise, and she lifted her face to the sweetness of it. For a minute, Crossan 
looked past her, out into the darkness, and he looked back. Aren't you ever lonely here at night? he asked suddenly. You mean frightened, she corrected quickly and coldly. Yes. Yes, that's what I meant, he said, taken aback. Ah, but why would you be frightened? What safer place could you be under the sky than right here with your own fields all about you? What he said was so true, and he himself as he stood there with his hat in his hand, so normal and natural, it was indeed absurd to think that he would no sooner have gone out the door than she would be scurrying up the stairs like a child. You may not believe it, she said, but I'm scared to death sometimes. I nearly died when I heard your knock on the door tonight. It's because I was scared that I was upstairs, she said, in a further burst of confidence. I always go up the minute it gets dark. I don't feel so frightened up in my room. Isn't that strange now, he said, and she could see he found it an incomprehensibly womanly thing to do. He was sympathetic all the same. You shouldn't be alone. That's the truth of the matter, he said. It's a shame. Oh, it can't be helped, she said. There was something she wanted to shrug off in his sympathy, while at the same time there was something in it she wanted to take. Would you like to do something for me, she asked impulsively. Would you wait and put out the lights down here and let me get back upstairs before you go? After she had spoken for a minute, she felt foolish. But she saw at once that, if anything, he thought it only too little to do for her. He was genuinely troubled about her. And it wasn't only the present moment that concerned him. He seemed to be considering the whole problem of her isolation and loneliness. Is there nobody could stay here with you at night even? It would have to be another woman, of course, he added quickly and her heart was warmed by the way, without a word from her, who rejected that solution out of hand. You don't want a woman about the place, he said flatly. Oh, I'm all right, really. I'll get used to it, she said. It's a shame all the same, he said. He said it helplessly, though, and he motioned her towards the stairs. You'll be all right for tonight anyway, he said. Go up the stairs now, and I'll put out the lights. He had already turned around to go back into the sitting room. It wasn't quite as she intended for some reason, and it was somewhat reluctantly that she started up the stairs. Wait a minute, how do I put out this one? He called out before she was halfway up. Oh, I'd better put out that one myself, she said, thinking of the awkward position of the plug. She ran down again, and going past him into the little room, she knelt and pulled at the cord. Instantly, the room was deluged in darkness, and instantly she felt that she had done something stupid. It was not like turning out a light by a switch at the door and being able to step back at once into the lighted hall. She got to her feet as quickly as she could, but as she did, she saw that Crossan had come to the doorway. His bulk was blocked out against the light beyond. I leave the rest to you, she said, in order to break the peculiar silence that had come down on the house. But he didn't move. He stood there, the full of the doorway. The other switches are over there by the hall door, she said, unwilling to brush past him. Why didn't he move?
over there, she repeated, stretching out her arm and pointing. But instead of moving, he caught her outstretched arm and putting out his other hand, he pressed his palm against the door jamb, barring the way. Tell me, he whispered, his words falling over each other. Are you never lonely at all? What did you say? She said in a clear voice, because the thickness of his voice sickened her. She'd hardly heard what he said. Her one thought was to get past him. He leaned forward. What about a little kiss? He whispered. And to get a better hold on her, he let go the hand he had pressed against the wall. But before he caught at her with both hands, she had wrenched her arm free of him and ignominiously ducking under his armpit. She was out next minute in the lighted hall. Out there, because light was all the protection she needed from him, the old fool, she began to laugh. She'd only to wait for him to come sheepishly out. But there was something she hadn't counted on. She hadn't counted on there being anything pathetic in his sheepishness. There was something actually pitiful in the way he shambled into the light, not raising his eyes. And she was so surprisingly touched by him that before he had time to utter a word, she put out her hand. Don't feel too bad, she said. I didn't mind. Even then, he didn't look at her. He just took her hand and pressed it gratefully, his face still turned away. And to her dismay, she saw that his nose was running water. Like a small boy, he wiped it with the back of his fist, streaking his face. I don't know what came over me, he said slowly. I'm getting on to be an old man now. I thought I was beyond all that. He wiped his face again, beyond letting myself go anyway, he amended miserably. Oh, it was nothing, she said. He shook his head. It wasn't as if I had cause for what I did. But you did nothing, she protested. It wasn't nothing to me, he said dejectedly. For a minute, they stood there silent. The whole door was still ajar she didn't dare to close it. What am I going to do with him now, she thought. I'll have him here all night if I'm not careful. What time was it anyway? All scale and proportion seemed to have gone from the night. Well, I'll see you in the morning, Mr. Crossan, she said, as matter-of-factly as possible. He nodded, but made no move. You know, I meant no disrespect to you, ma'am, don't you? He said then looking imploringly at her. I always had a great regard for you and for your husband too. I was thinking of him the very night when I was coming up to the house and I thought of him again when you came to the door looking like a young girl. I thought what a pity it was him to be taken from you when you're both so young. Oh, what came over me at all and what would Mona say if she knew? But you wouldn't tell her, I hope, she cried. What sort of figure would she cut if he told? Her hair down her back, her bare feet. Take care, would you tell her, she warned. I don't suppose I ought, he said. But he said it uncertainly and morosely, and he leaned back against the wall. 
She's been a good woman, Mona. I wouldn't want anyone to think different. Even the boys could tell you. She's been a good mother to them all these years. She never made a bit of difference between them. Some say she was better to Bartley than to any of them. She reared him from a week old. She was living next door to us, you see, at the time. He hesitated. At the time, I was left with him. He finished in a flat voice. She came in that first night and took him home to her own bed. And mind you, that wasn't a small thing for a woman who knew nothing about children, not being what you'd call a young girl at the time, in spite of the big family she gave me afterwards. She took him home that night and she looked after him. It isn't every woman would care to be responsible for a newborn baby. That's a thing a man doesn't forget easy. There's many I know would say that if she hadn't taken him, someone else would have, but no one, only her, would have done it the way she did. She used to have him all day in her own cottage, feeding him and the rest of it. But at night, when I'd be back from the fields, she'd bring him home and leave him down in his little crib by the fire alongside of me. She used to let on that she had things to do in her own place and she'd slip away and leave us alone. But that wasn't her real reason for leaving him. She knew the way I'd be sitting looking into the fire, wondering how I'd face the long years ahead. And she left the child there with me to break my thoughts. And she was right. I never got long to brood. The child would give a cry or a whinge and I'd have to run out and fetch her to him or else she'd hear him herself, maybe, and run in without me having to call her at all. I used to often think she must have kept every window and door in her place open for fear she'd lose a sound from either of us. And so bit by bit, I was knit back into a living man. I often wonder what would have become of me if it wasn't for her. There are men, and when the bright weight closes to them, there's no knowing it'll take a dark way. And I was that class of man. I told you she used to take the little fellow away in the day and bring him back at night. But of course, she used to take him away again, coming on to the real dark of night. She'd take him away to her own bed. But as the months went on and he got bigger, I could see she hated taking him away from me at all. He was beginning to smile and play with his fists and be real company. I wonder what I'd leave him with you tonight, she'd say then, night after night. And sometimes she'd run in and dump him down in the middle of the big double bed in the room off the kitchen, but the next minute she'd snatch him up again. I'd be afraid you'd overlie him. You might only smother him, caught between us in all harm. You'd better take him, I'd say. I used to hate to see him go myself by this time. All the same, I was afraid he'd start crying in the night. And what would I do then? If I had to go out for her in the middle of the night, it could cause a lot of talk. There was talk enough as things were, I can tell you, although there was no grounds for it. I had no more notion of her than if she wasn't a woman at all. Would you believe that? But one night when she took him up and put him down, and put him down and took him up, and went on and on about leaving him or taking him, I had to laugh. 
It's a pity you can't stay along with him. And that would settle all, I said. I was only joking her, but she got as red as fire. The next thing she burst out crying, but not before she'd cut up the child and wrapped her coat around him. Then after giving me a terrible look, she ran out of the door with him. Well, that was the beginning of it. I had no idea she had any feelings for me. I thought it was only for the child. But men are fools, as women well know. And she knew before me what was right and proper for us both. And for the child, too. Some women have great insight into these things. And God opened my own eyes then to the woman I had in her. And I saw it was better I took her than wasted away after the one that was gone. And wasn't I right? Of course you were right, she said quickly. But he slumped back against the wall and the abject look came back into his eyes. I'll never get rid of him, she thought desperately. Ah, what ails you, she cried impatiently. Forget it, can't you? I can't, he said simply. And it's not only me, it's the wife I'm thinking about. I've shamed her. Ah, for heaven's sake, it's nothing got to do with her at all. Surprised, he looked up at her. You're not blaming yourself, surely, he asked. She'd have laughed at that if she hadn't seen that she was making headway. Another stroke and she'd be rid of him. Ah, what are you blaming any of us for, she cried. It's got nothing to do with any of us, with you or me or the woman at home waiting for you. It was the other one. That girl, your first wife, Bridie. It was her. Blame her. She's the one did it. The words had broken from her. For a moment she thought she was hysterical and that she could not stop. You thought you could forget her, she said. But see what she did to you when she got the chance. She stopped and looked at him. He was standing at the open door. He didn't look back. God rest her soul, he said. And he stepped into the night. That was Colm Toybean, reading In the Middle of the Fields by Mary Lavin. The story was published in The New Yorker in June of 1961 and included in the collection In the Middle of the Fields and Other Stories, which came out in 1967. It also appears in In a Cafe, Selected Stories, which was published by Penguin Classics in 1999. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. 
You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Colm, the skeleton of this story is drawn, obviously, from Lavin's life. Her husband had died when she was 42, and she stayed on their farm and, and raised their daughters by herself for a period of time. Do you think of it as directly autobiographical? It's autobiographical in its circumstance. It's County yeah. Meath, where she lived. It's close to the River Boyne, where she lived. And yes, it is a widow and who is bringing up her children. But I think then the next bit of her um, trying to work out what grief is, is something very special to her of that she, the woman doesn't want to be reminded of him. She wants to forget him. If there's anything she could do to get him out of her mind. And so this encounter is something I would imagine is while she was there at night on her own thinking what could happen tonight in this long night, you know, overlooking the River Boyne, which is, well, nothing's going to happen. And that's a lovely <laughs> thing for a writer, I think, that nothing is going to happen. But what if, on a, you know, what if a knock came to the door? I mean, it's out of this, the immediate repository of stories. What if a sudden knock came to the door? Who would it be and what would he say? Well, what's fascinating to me is is her grief or her difficulty seems to center around not the loss of her husband, but this fear she has. And she even says it. It's not it's not that she's lonely. It's that she has anxieties at day in the day and fears at night. And her fear all focuses on this knock on the door in the dark. What is she expecting to appear at the door? Well, that she's un- fully unprotected and everyone in the locality would know that she's fully unprotected. And that this was the, would be the first time in her life that so that you you have that basic thing of just somebody alone in a house with children in the middle of fields being absolutely afraid of the night. And um, but then, of course, the whole question of the detail of um, where her hair is, what she's wearing, all the whole business of, of her going down to him. And it looks as though as a talker. And I did have many conversations with her. She could be a great rambler. And she told me that often the story, she didn't know where they were going to take her when she started them. And you can see that story about Crossan's wife when it's being told. It seems to go nowhere. It seems as as if it's going to lead us nowhere. How about the second wife or the first? No, about the first one. That just, it's, it's not something we actually need to know. It just seems to filling in the detail. And she told me that she often just worked like that and then would cut and cut and cut trying to find the core of the story. So that that, that story looks like an, an aside. 
the story of how his first wife died. But then when it suddenly starts to echo against her own story, had he forgotten the first wife completely? Did he remember her? Was he just reminded of her then? How long did it take to forget? And then there is the idea of her being still a young woman, of the hair, the bare feet, of her coming down the stairs, the detail, the really important detail of the plug, the lamp, Mm -hmm. where the lights in the house are, where the switches are. I think that if you're writing anything, um, you've got to know where the light switches are. Are they either <laughs> the, the right or the left? You know, it's so technical, that, the, all, the all detail. Of, where to... his arm is, yeah. how she gets under his arm, yeah. and um, where the shoes, and then this, the, that detail. She was very good on that. You need one more thing here. I mean, she could have gone upstairs to get slippers. But suddenly Robert, the name gets mentioned, mm-hmm. that, that his shoe that she often used that she hadn't thrown out with the rest of his clothes. So that she has her token, as it were, um, of memory of him, just as Crossan has his story to tell of how um, he lost the first wife and got the second one. And, um, and so the two stories circle around each other until we get the moment where he says to her, I mean, it builds up very slowly. And, you know, it's, it's almost like something in music where there's an undercurrent in the melody that's going to come. And then he asks her, you know, are you ever lonely? And then he makes a small move on her. And you see, what's wonderful is the way in which she turns that around, that she could easily run out screaming or push him away or run upstairs. But she's in full control. She wants to get him out of the house. That is her main aim. But also, he, he could look brutal or, or he could look threatening. But when he comes back, he looks sheepish. He's pitiful. Pitiful. Yeah. And they start to actually have a conversation. Something gets said that actually is about life. It's about life continuing, about the strangeness of life. I think that was one of her great subjects, um, that life could never be predicted and that if you ever thought it could someone would say something else that would move it in another direction she desperately doesn't want him to tell his wife what he did in case his wife would start blaming her right. for coming down in bare feet with her hair down but also and she doesn't want to get him out yeah. but also he's the one she feels sorry for rather than feeling sorry for herself and she almost isn't frightened so it is, it is almost as though from this moment onwards, something new can begin that she will have managed this situation so effectively yeah. that her, that there's a turn in the story which is really quite significant, which is, which is, the, which is a turn in, um, in her life. Well, there's a, a sense in which by, by sort of getting away from him, getting under his arm and then having pity on him, she's taken the upper hand and suddenly... She's in power. Yes, it's a real storyteller's art where you can see the line going in one direction and then you stop it and think, there's there's, there's a better way of handling this. There's an ambiguity I can put here. Oh, no, I can even make it more and more. Make him the one who's almost afraid or who's been been weakened by his own strength. And that she, in a way, has been strengthened by her own weakness. And they do this sort of, I mean, the choreography is astonishingly accurate, where the stair, the (laughs) door, and also the way when the door is opened the second time, the the wind 
bringing in the smell of hay, mm-hmm. all of that farm life thing that's there. So I, I think sentence by sentence, it's, it's, it's really, it looks as though it's rambling. And then it's very sharply constructed, which I think was something when, when people were, were, were used to talk about her work and how much they admired it. It was always that sense. She described the short story as being like an arrow in flight. Mm-hmm. That was her phrase. And, and, and it is that sense that the story is on its way somewhere all the time, but it just doesn't look like that at certain moments. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me in, that, in the conversation before he uh, makes the move on her is that that whole conversation is, is a sort of power struggle between them where he's trying to somehow evade doing this job he's promised to do the next day or get more money for it or do something. It's not even clear why, what he's trying to do. He's trying to get the best of her in this discussion and she's not having it. And you see, that could be the story that he merely came around and she realized she'd been defeated and she went, you could easily have her just going back upstairs realizing that this was going to be the way of things in the future. And so that must have been tempting as well at a certain point. Just leave it at that where, you know, he, he promises to do something and he won't and, and that she will never be able to manage. And then it turns where he actually talks about how much he always admired her. And, and the spark comes back into him and um, it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. And then it, because of the way they've been talking, it's, it's, it's fully credible. She just builds up this sort of sour way the two of them have of talking to each other or brisk. Mm-hmm. And every moment the mood changes between them. And then this, where he makes a pass at her. And this is, this is really where the story starts to move then towards its ending. Something incredible about that scene. I mean, it's set in, in the 1960s or 50s on a farm in Ireland, and yet to just about any woman it's going to feel familiar that this moment in which this sort of man who doesn't quite get it misinterprets every signal, you know. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think for now... <laughs> in his own favour. <laughs> I, I mean, I think for now the story is remarkable in that, a, that war that's going on, that's coming to the open now, was something that she was dramatising then, which is that, that he actually doesn't understand how much he frightens her and that her aim, in fact, is to get him out of her house <laughs> and, uh, and that he looks sheepish, but not sheepish in a way that she, she doesn't, for example, at any moment want him or no. want him to stay. She wants, really, really wants him to go. <laughs> and so, yes, it's, um, I mean, for 1961, it's, it's a way of bringing something right into the open. Yeah. Um, about that particular drama that um, is still with us, and uh, and that um, uh, that I think um, there, there, I mean, there must be writers, I suppose, mainly women writers, who really need to tell this story again. Like, do you not get it? Like, she tried it in 1961. How many years later do we still have to try it? But the thing is, she did it with a sort of infinite subtlety, yeah. where you actually get the woman's um, strength. As, as much as her weakness. You get her determination, um, also as much as how frightened she is. She's also determined. You, you can see that she's going to survive. A, an entire character is pictured here. It's not merely that she has one characteristic. She's not merely the frightened woman upstairs, yeah. you know, af- afraid of the dark. She's actually not afraid of him in, in the end, she actually just wants to get him out. So that there, there is quite a lot of nuance in, 
in her character. Even in particular moments, you know, he compliments her hair and, and she wants it and doesn't want it. And yes. He, she wants and doesn't want his sympathy. There's something she wants to take and doesn't want to take. Yeah. And she's also going to manage, I mean, the whole business of money and him coming and her, she's, she, is, she, is, she isn't going to be helpless yeah. in this new situation. And so there, there, she has many characteristics and she plays all of them in this story. I mean, she plays every note yeah. that she can. And he keeps saying in their, in their pre-conversation where he keeps referring to her as a woman. Oh, you know, I know when I've been bested even by a woman or, you know, all women think they can take care of themselves or this and that. Yeah. He it's makes a sort continuous of jokey. kind of put down. Yes, it's an interesting when he makes those jokey remarks because the reader has been learning so much about her from those opening paragraphs. They take on a certain power when he says them, you notice them. And, and they actually have an almost poetic, so, oh, a woman. And she has to listen to this. Yeah. And, um, but, it, but it isn't as though the relationship between them is easy to interpret in full. There is a sense that she has, that he has broken her loneliness for the night, but not in a way that she wants. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the strangest idea. I mean, she, 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 she is lonely. Yeah. And he interrupts her loneliness, but she doesn't want him to stay. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting to me, too, is that we get in such detail the story of his two wives. We get nothing about Robert. We don't know how he died. We don't know if it was expected. We don't know what their relationship was, what their, if their marriage was a strong one. Why, why do you think we get nothing of him? It's um, one of the, I think, qualities of grief, that whole idea of just not being able to even mention the person mm. who's gone. And it comes up in that opening paragraph where she doesn't want to remember him. And she says, oh, and, I've forgotten um, him for a minute. <laughs> it comes up in other stories by her, in a story, a story in a cafe where it's very clear that there's a palpable absence. It is something, I, mean, I think it's quite important that, that she's dealing here with a, a sense of genuine grief where it's not as though she's going to start talking about her husband, about Robert. His, the only thing there will be the token you know, his shoes. Mm-hmm. And obviously it was his farm. And obviously people are noticing her that she's alone. But um, she's not ready to begin to talk about him. And um, that absence is, is all over the story. And, and I think it's one of the ways in which it fits into um, any number of narratives we have about grief, about things that cannot be said, things that cannot be spelt out. Those widow stories of hers, I think, are very special for that reason because it's a sort of a there, there, there's a level of genuine feeling where um, something that might be very easy to dwell on, like the past, like images from the past, are simply left unsaid, unsayable, unspoken, unspeakable. The children are also invisible in this story. You know, you think if she has three young children, they're three young children are not quiet. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're not silent. They're not invisible. Yeah. But we never see them. No, they're no. behind a locked door upstairs. Yeah, they're they're fast. They're fast asleep during all of this. <laughs> Untroubled too. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, we get all of this detail about Bridie. Yeah. And perhaps just because that loss is so far in the past, it's addressable. Yes, or? he can release his grief. He yeah. can describe the whole business. It's something that belongs to everybody. Everybody knows bits of the story. Her story is locked inside her and she talks about that idea of this of that in that opening paragraph extraordinary image of the stone at the tomb yeah that um that 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 stone is also locked inside her um 
as a thing that that um, she that there it, it isn't a currency that she can spend, which it is with him. It's mm-hmm. it's years ago, and there's also a sense about him the way he can describe things and have stories told about him. She's living in a, in a, in a really anguished privacy, mm-hmm. and so as you say, the story just simply doesn't give us details of what is really going on in her mind. I mean, she's a widow. She's lost her husband. We don't know anything more. Yeah. We don't know what's to come. Yeah. And we just we just hope she's going to get her fields, you know, taken care of. <laughs> yes, but also this night, but, handling this, will have given her some new strength that that it will she'll be changed by the morning, which is, I think, an interesting moment. It's the sort of thing that she talked about with the short story, the moment that, that on, on a certain second, a world will hinge. Why, why do you think Crossan goes back? What is, what is he expecting to get see, out of he, going back alone at night? You see, when he came earlier in the day, he was reminded of his first wife. Yeah. And there she is um, alone. Yeah. And he just wants one last spark, as he says. It's one, you know, he thinks it's over for him. And he obviously is making clear that he was never fully in love with the second wife. Yeah. That it happened in a different way. But this is something that that's some big mistake that he made that leaves him sheepish. But he comes back because he's um, sexually interested in her. Even though he makes a big point of saying, oh, I don't even look at women now, you know, I can't. So he says that before. Yeah. And, but he almost says that. And you realize the reason he's talking so much is he's waiting for the moment <laughs> when he can move, <laughs> that it's on his mind, you know. But what's, what's marvelous about the story is that he doesn't come up drunk. You see... There's a whole Irish tradition of, oh, get him drunk, have him loud, have violence. It's, he actually just drives up. You know, he isn't actually very threatening, although he does fill the doorway. So, so that's another interesting example of Mary Lavin, where she will get him. And then she, the image we have of him is the image with the baby will be very tender against his standing there, the bulk of him that she really wants to leave. So that, you know, with, with every, every time she did something, she did the opposite to see what that would look like. Mm-hmm. So that each of her characters has a sort of, um, I, I, I suppose, sort of energy released by um, opposing characteristics. Yeah, what's in, and I suppose that just plays out in the scene because if he's going back with, with seduction in mind, he goes about it in a very strange way by trying to back out of doing the work he's promised to do. And yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? he just needs to have the conversation. I mean, yeah. I think we're entitled to feel that he isn't trying to back out of it, that, that he hasn't got <laughs> other work to do, that he just needs to actually come up yeah. with a good reason why he can't come the next day. That's his excuse. That's his alibi for being here. Mm-hmm. So you think it's very premeditated? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then the guilt that he feels, even though actually, in a sense, all he's done is made a fool of himself. He hasn't. Uh, yeah, the but he thinks he's he let his it. wife down, you know. Right. And, um, but he also isn't sure how this should be handled. And she's desperate to contain it. Yeah. It's, it's nothing. Go away. Yeah. But he almost wants to talk to her about it. Yeah. Have a discussion. <laughs> you know. He's very, he, he in a sense is very childlike in those moments. Yeah, you know, she's, yes. she's got to mother him through this. Yes, she's the one with the strength now that he has shown desire, which was a sort of weakness. 
do you think of Mary Lavin as a feminist writer in this domestic world? Oh, I think she wrote about women um, with particular sensitivity and care. Um, she stood for something in, a, in an Ireland where really there weren't any women in public life. You know, she was a public figure in the country. I mean, she meant something. And um, she had a stately grace about herself. And um, she she wasn't part of that movement that grew, you know, in with people like Yvonne Boland and Mary Robinson in the 1960s. But she certainly had almost alone plowed a field, mm-hmm. you know, um, writing about a particular class, middle class, and refusing to deal in any Irish cliches about, you know, um, for example, intense poverty or um, drunkenness or violence, all those things were not part of her lexicon. She was much more interested in the, um, you know, in, in where, the, where the plug for the lamp was. <laughs> you know, she, she deeply admired Catherine Mansfield, for example. Right. And um, in, in a way, it's that tradition. And she also obviously came, I mean, she was really, um, really admired Chekhov. Mm-hmm. And so she stood for, I suppose, a sort of, um, you know, um, a sort of modesty and tone. While everyone else, there were many people around her who were trying to be a genius. Do you think she was a, a precursor f- for writers like uh, Edna O'Brien? Or You know, Edna O'Brien really was quite a different figure mm-hmm. in that when she wrote those early books of hers, it was as though no one had written before. Yeah. You know, she introduced a sort of air of sexuality and freedom and youth at the time where Mary Lavin was describing the, really the old dull business of being a middle-aged woman living alone, trying to bring up children, uh, moving between a farm and the city. So that, and Edna Brandt looked to London. You know, London was where the characters would eventually go whereas Mary Lavin didn't deal with London and didn't ever deal, Edna O'Brien didn't either, with, say, the national question, with the, blaming the British for anything. She wasn't, <laughs> she wasn't like that. But, um, you know, I think her influence has waned and um, I might be alone in having been hugely influenced by her, you know, yeah, that I have yeah. really studied. There's a story called Happiness, um, which, of course, being an Irish story, it isn't about happiness at all. <laughs> but um, it's a strain of Irish writing, as I say, which goes back to Joyce and, and may even go back to someone like George Moore and takes its bearings in a sort of slow build-up of detail. Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, what she did was she fought the good fight in that um, over a period of really 50 years, she produced, you know, two stories a year or three, carefully crafted, worked on. Um, I mean, she wrote in bed, she told me, um, just anything came into her head first and then narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. So that, I mean, just um, in the in the 70s, her collected stories came out in either two or three volumes. I know I have a two-volume collected stories, which really, really is a huge achievement. But I think now what's needed um, is a good selected stories. Mm-hmm. I think there are many. I, I think that technically, she's remarkable. Yeah. How do you think you've you've uh, taken things from her for your own work? Oh, certainly. Um, I don't think not stolen. Learned things. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think I could have written the novel Nora Webster yeah. um, without the story in the middle of the fields. In, in other words, she 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 opened a door, and that door was all about the idea 
of you don't have to go into the flashback. You don't have to go, someone has lost her husband. Don't just make it easy for the reader by telling, oh, how happy they were when they were married. It's, it's, It's something that cannot be mentioned. And that's something I know because that's what happened in our house. We simply were not able to mention my father's name. So, you know, after a year, you couldn't say his name. It was unsayable. And the only time, there are very few times I've actually found a writer who could write about grief in that way, where it isn't grief, it's silence. It's gone, in, it's gone inwards rather than outwards. And it's not to be shown, it's to be withheld, held in. And so she certainly, um, there was something remarkably truthful about how she handled all of that and original um, and serious. And um, I certainly was, I, I, I have found that very enabling. Well, thank you, Colm. Uh, thanks very much, Deborah. Thank you. Mary Lavin, who died in 1996 at age 83, was the author of 19 short story collections and three novels. In a Cafe, Selected Stories was released posthumously in 1999. Colm Turbin won the International Dublin Literary Award for his 2004 novel, The Master. His most recent novel, House of Names, was published in May by Scribner. You can download 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store, including one in which Colm Toybean reads a story by Sylvia Townsend Warner. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.